excuse me. Go ahead and turn, if you would, in your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Um, we'll pick up where we kind of stopped last week, and then we want to continue on. Hopefully we have time. Uh, continue on into the uh, next section, next lesson. Um, is anybody, did anybody not get a handout from last week, last week, from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, church at Ephesus? I'll let you grab it, I'm having difficulty there. All right, I tell you what. That's the next one, if you pass that out at the proper time. All right, we're just going to do this this morning. We're going to pray and jump right in here. We'll read some scriptures um, when we get to them, okay? But uh, let's go ahead and just pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, this opportunity this morning. Look into your word. I pray that you'd help us as we look at continue on in, in looking at uh, the book of Revelation, and especially then this morning here in chapter 2 is these... Uh, letters, these seven letters to these seven churches are, are very, very important. Uh, they, have, they were, of course, when they were written, uh, still very, very important for your churches and your people today. We pray that you'd help us, uh, again, just to be drawn closer to you through studying your word this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and for his sake we pray, amen. All right, Revelation chapter 2, we uh, are in uh, the first letter to the first church, the letter to the church at Ephesus, and um, we had we had gotten through quite a bit of this, but let me just um, just highlight the outline. All right, as it's as it's laid out in the handout that you have. Uh, of course, we see. Remember, every one of these, I say, everyone. These letters basically follow a sevenfold outline for the most part, all right? It's consistent in every one of these letters. You see the church addressed, you see uh, Christ described, you see a commendation, some good words that the Lord uh, has for the churches. There's a couple exceptions to that, uh, a couple of the churches, and then you see the condemnation. In other words, the Lord points out what is wrong, what He sees wrong with the church. There's a couple exceptions to that as well, as we will see this morning. Uh, and then the correction, uh, you know, that's, that's in keeping with the Lord and His Word. Remember that we, we, we used, or we looked at 2 Timothy 3.16 as an example of that. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The Lord, He's, he's not interested in just pointing out what's wrong he points out what is wrong so that we can, it can be made right and we can be right with Him. That's, that's His desire. Uh, and that's in keeping with His character. That's in keeping with the whole pattern of the Word of God. And you see that uh, in, in these letters as well. Uh, but then uh, not only does He offer correction, but then uh, there are consequences mentioned if the church doesn't heed. Uh, that correction, and then there's a challenge issued, which 
basically is a challenge to listen up, to hear, and then there's always a promise uh, attached to overcomers. Um, and so in keeping with that, we had, we had started going through the first letter here. We talked about uh, you know, the, the city of Ephesus just a little bit there and really the importance that that church had in the scheme of this whole uh, area here that these churches are delivered to. Um, we, we see Christ's description and his description that he gives of himself here is an interesting one because it's a description of himself really in relation to his churches. He holds the seven stars, which remember back from chapter one, those seven stars are what? The seven angels, or I think we could fairly say, literally we would say the seven messengers to these churches, but uh, I think fairly we could say that the pastors of these churches, so you see that connection. And then he secondly describes himself as the one who's walking in the midst of his candlesticks. Remember John, as he turns to see the voice that he heard, he first of all sees seven golden candlesticks. Right? And then he sees Christ in the midst of those candlesticks. And Christ here not only describes himself as being in the midst of those, but he says he's walking in the midst. He has an interaction with his churches and, and so on. Um, it's an interesting thing. I'm not, you know, um, but when you think about the idea of fellowship, okay, um, you can also see kind of a, 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 a parallel description, I think, in the Bible with the term walking with. For instance, you think of Enoch back in the Old Testament. He walked with God. He had a, a fellowship with God. He had a, a, a walking relationship with God and, you know, uh, and that. And, and so Christ is in the midst of his churches. He's walking in the midst of his churches. He desires fellowship and so on with his churches. And that really is something that's important because when you work through this letter, we, we saw that description. We saw that the Lord commends this church for a lot of things, a long list of, of good things the Lord has to say about this church. In fact, perhaps you could argue there's more good things as far as numbers of things said about this church than any of the other churches. However, uh, he does point out something as, as we started to see uh, last week, but he talks about, and, and I just kind of group these commendations in three areas, their dedication, their doctrine, and their determination. And uh, anyway, just, just a lot of good things the Lord had to say. I, I want to press on here. And then we, we saw the condemnation. The Lord did point out he had an issue with this church. There was something that needed attention. Uh, and he basically says, you know, I have something against you. I have somewhat against you. There, there's something there that I need to point out is the idea. All these good things. In fact, there's some things said about this church that in a good way that are not said about any other church. This was a good church. All right. But bottom line is he said that they had left their first love. And um, we, we, we talked about that some, okay, and, and we're not going to dwell forever on that. But at other times, let me just word it that way, in looking at this passage of Scripture, um, on your handout, we, we called this church the church with heart disease. In other, 
In other times, I've, I've described this church as the distracted church. And I think that that goes hand in hand with what the problem is. In other words, um, I, I think, let me just show you an example, right, in, in the New Testament. Go back to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, we have a little incident here that only Luke records. You're familiar with the, with the passage, with the setting here, all right? Um, in fact, let's just do it this way so that we can incorporate everybody in reading sometime throughout the morning, hopefully. But, um, Pastor, if you'll start with verse 38 and let's just continue on until verse 42. I know not everybody's going to get to read on this occasion. We'll pick back up with others later. But verse 38 of Luke chapter 10. Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. Martha was cumbered about much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. All right. Without spending a whole lot of time, you know, we could, we'd spend the rest of time talking about this passage, but um, you have a situation here where everybody's familiar with this. Jesus visits the house of Lazarus, Mary, Martha, uh, and in the, the scope of this little snippet that we have here, Martha, I mean, think about her situation. Here's the Lord Jesus coming to her house. This is an opportunity for her to serve him, right? And, and that would have been a normal and a commendable thing that she was doing. But it's interesting the way it's, it's laid out here. In verse 40 it says, but Martha was cumbered. The idea is she was all wrapped up in this serving of the Lord, which again, taken by itself is an extremely... Good thing, commendable thing. There's nothing wrong in itself with what she desired to do and what she was trying to do. I mean, you see what I'm saying, okay? And, and you're familiar with the passage. You know what, what's going on here. But then she realized, you know, her sister, who in normal circumstances probably should have been helping her, right, with the preparing and the serving and all this stuff, was just sitting there listening to Jesus. And that kind of bothered her. Well, like, you know, I'm here doing this by myself. She needs to be in here helping me, you know, and all this kind of thing. And then, of course, she, she tells the Lord about it. And then what the Lord's response is what's interesting here. He says, just to sum it up, at the end, he says, Mary, notice he says, has chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. The point being is, okay, serving the Lord is important, right? But according to what Jesus tells Martha here, sitting at his feet, spending personal time with him was more important. It was more, in fact, he uses the word needful. 
And again, I'm not saying everything's exactly the same as what's happening in Revelation 2 at the church at Ephesus, but I think there's a lot of similarity there in that the church, I mean, the church was doing good things. They were serving. They were bearing burdens. They were enduring difficulties. They were, they were being, uh, you know, practicing church purity. We talk, you know, and they were, they were sound in doctrine. In fact, there's things about their doctrine that's not said about any other church. And all those are wonderful, wonderful, commendable things that should be true of a church. But the point is, Jesus points out to them there that really the bottom line you could say is they had become so involved in doing and serving that they neglected that needful thing. The first love, which is Him. And He says it's a serious thing. In fact, as we get back into that then, all right, he, he delivers this. I mean, there's a sentence here that they've left their first love. It's a serious thing, and we, we spent a little bit of time th- talking about that last week. I mean, you know, the greatest commandment, according to the Lord Jesus, is to what? To love God supremely. Love Him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. I mean, that's the greatest thing. Is not serving but loving. And, uh, you know, I mean, and, and then uh, last week as well, Pastor Brinker po- pointed out that example of, you know, that idea of what can happen in a marriage. Of, you know, over the years of time and just all the things of life and the things you have to do. It's not that those aren't Important things, working a job, taking care of kids, all that kind of stuff, those are things that have to be done. But if we're not careful, it can, it can allow a wedge. It can allow a, a distance between. And the most important part in a marriage is what? It's that relationship between the husband and wife. But there's, I mean, have you ever heard it said that, you know, today we have the most time-saving devices of, that's ever been, but we're the busiest of any, you know, gener- that's ever been. I mean, now whether that is exactly true, that we're the, you know, I don't know, but there's an irony to that, isn't there? And again, that's kind of just another parallel, I think, of what's, what you could say and see is happening with this church at Ephesus. They were so focused on serving and doing, which were good things. But over time, they had just left behind what was the most needful thing. They had neglected that. And, and it's easy, it, it is definitely easy to get distracted from the most important things. And it's a serious thing. And we all have that susceptibility of that neglect and so on. And anyway, then the Lord Jesus tells them, He offers them correction, right? He says in, uh, what is it, verse 5, I'm back in Luke 10, sorry, let me get to Revelation 2 again. Uh, In verse 5, he says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. It's interesting he uses that terminology. You've you've fallen from a certain place. Remember from, from where you fell 
and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. So the correction here is, you could say threefold, to remember, to repent, and to redo. All right, he says get back, you know, put, put a priority again on those most important things. He doesn't say to not do the other things, but first, the most needful. And, uh, you know, I don't know who it's attributed to, but I, 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 I know I've heard Doug Hammett, Pastor Doug Hammett, say numerous times, you know, that oftentimes the, uh, the urgent, and this isn't necessarily a quote verbatim, but the idea, the urgent is, is what steals from the most important. And that's, that's often the case, you know, and, and we can't allow that in our lives because obviously there are, there are consequences to that. And here the Lord Jesus says, if they don't heed his correction to remember, repent, and redo, all right, he says, I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Now, this is an interesting thing. Because if you think about it, that's a pretty serious sounding consequence here. And when you read the other letters that we'll get to, I, in, in a way, okay, now again, now this is, you know, when you read them from a human standpoint, I think some of the other things that are said about the other churches sound a lot more serious than what this does. But they don't have this kind of statement said about them. It's an interesting thing. Now, by the way, he doesn't say he's going, their, their candlestick would no longer be. He said it would be removed from its place. Now, in this context, where is the place of that candlestick? Around the Lord Jesus, right? In John's vision of that. He says he will remove it out of its place. Now, to be honest with you, what exactly all is entailed in that? I'm not necessarily sure. He doesn't give details on that. Obviously, it was something either that they knew or it was a serious enough warning that it should shock them into obeying what he's telling them to do. Regardless, it's a pretty serious consequence here. All right? But he talks about a quick, a quick appearing and a candlestick removal. Now, Again, let me, let me just press on because I want to get to the, uh, the next letter here. And then you see the challenge issued, all right? So hopefully everybody at least without, I mean, we could spend the rest of this time, of course, just still talking about this, but this is a serious thing. And we should be warned that really, I mean, serving the Lord, doing, you know, all that's important, the right doctrine, the right service, all that. And God expects that, by the way. But it should never take the place of our devotion to Him and our love, our personal communion with Him needs to be first and foremost. Because <clears throat> there's, there's consequences down the road of that not being the case. And it's interesting to me, I made a little note here on, on my handout, you know, the Lord doesn't overlook these things. Even though there's so many other good things that He commended them about, He doesn't overlook this needful thing. You know, so it's not like, well, we can excuse it because there's so much other good things. That's, that's how we tend to think about things. You know, 
and, 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 but that's not the case, all right? Anyway, let, let, just notice verse 7, all right? He that hath an ear, all right, that's everybody in here as far as I can tell. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, all right? So again, that challenge comes across. Pay attention. Listen up to what I'm saying. And again, this is one of those things that demonstrates, all right, this, this uh, what the Lord's saying here is obviously directed to the church at Ephesus. A literal, you know, that literal church that existed at that specific time, that is God's, you know, He's pointing this, these, it's to them, but it's also, generally, He's telling everybody to listen up. And He's saying that He's saying this to all the churches. So this is good, not just for the church at Ephesus, but also for the church at Smyrna, also for the church at Pergamos, church at Thyatira, the church at Sardis, church at Philadelphia, church at Laodicea. It's good for Eastside Baptist Church today. It's good. For, I mean, it's all the Lord's churches need to listen up to this because we can all, whether or not this is exactly the characteristic of, say, Eastside Baptist Church now, there's a danger of it being. And so, it, we, you know, again, we should listen up and heed what he's saying. And then there's a, always, on these letters, there's a promise attached here. He says, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, um, I remember sometime last year, I don't remember the exacts, I think it was last year. Uh, if not, it was shortly before that, but... Uh, I think it was about Christmas time a year ago. You were talking, Pastor Brinker was talking about gifts and, and gifts that a Christian has to look forward to, is given, and use these uh, statements here in, in these letters to the churches. And, and these are all statements to him that overcometh, and just to be quick about it, I believe it's talking about to the people who are really saved, all right? We're going to have uh, the right to eat of the tree of life, which will be in heaven. All right, and later in Revelation, we're going to see some descriptions of heaven. We'll see a description of the tree of life, which isn't necessarily one single tree, but it's a, a type of tree, all right, that'll be there in heaven. Um, <clears throat> anyway, and it grows beside the river of life uh, and so on, but obviously something associated with eternal life here, all right, that believers will enjoy. Now, let's move on to the second uh, and Tim's got those to hand out, that the second letter here, all right, I'm, and I'm trying to just, you know, brush this under the rug and that, but I want to move on. Um, the letter from the Lord Jesus to the church at Smyrna, and this is found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And once these are all passed out, I'm going to ask... Whoever it is that's next, I don't remember where the reading stopped, but whoever, I think maybe Brother Andy. If you'll begin reading in Revelation 2, verse 8, and then just continue on until verse 11, through whoever, whoever that would be last. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write these things, saith the first and last, which is dead and is alive. I know thy works, tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich, and I 
Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, thou shalt cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt by the second death. All right. Now, in reading that, again, you know, you can see a basic similarity in the, in the layout, the progress, if you want to say, of that letter, how it starts, how it ends, and base, but the same basic components in between. But in, in reading that, now, of course, this would, uh, would basically be the shortest of these seven letters. Uh, it's only four verses here. I didn't count up the exact words, but uh, it's a rather short letter. And, and there's not, I mean, you could say there's a lack of a lot of things uh, that are said in this letter. But do you, do you see something that you might could say is glaringly missing compared to like the first letter we saw there and compared to the outline that we are using for these, the sevenfold outline for these letters? There is really no word of condemnation from the Lord Jesus to this church. Now, there's not all, it doesn't, you know, some might say, well, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of good things said about it. But there's perhaps more than you might think here uh, at first glance. But there is no word of condemnation for this church. The Lord never says, you have something wrong here and this needs to be corrected. So this is one of the two exceptions of uh, the churches uh, in that format we were saying, all right, this no word of condemnation to this church. But I want to I read this verse. It's actually on your handout right there, 2 Timothy 3.12, just to remind you of this because this is very fitting for the situation of this church at Smyrna. That, that verse, of course, Paul writing Timothy there, he says, Yea, and all that will live godly and... By the way, the, the idea of will live godly there, it's not talking about like a future tense living. In other words, if you're going to do that in the future. The will here is the idea of the word of want to or purpose to. All right, It's talking about your will. If you will to live godly in Christ Jesus, what does it say will happen? You will suffer persecution. In fact, it says all. Now think about that for a second. Everybody that purposes to live godly in Christ Jesus, according to what the Bible says here, is going to suffer persecution. Now, if you look at the verse carefully and study it and so on, the word persecution here is kind of a general term, okay, that you could say opposition, all right? It's not necessarily means that you're physically going to be tortured or something of that. That's not what the word necessarily means. But you're going you're to suffer some difficulty. There's going to be obstacles, all right, that you're going to face. Now, obviously, that varies greatly throughout time, location, and so on, all right? Is it possible for Christians in America to live godly, to, to purpose to live godly? But there's not really, I mean, in our day, it's becoming a little more so, all right? But for the most part, 
in the last couple hundred years of American history, Western history, if you want to say, Christians haven't had to suffer like most of God's people have throughout most of the ages. And like, in reality, most of God's people around the world today suffer. See, there's a lot of things that we look at from our particular uh, experiential lens, if you want to say, like our glasses, you know. I mean, we tend to look at things, that's just like, you know, people have said that these seven letters represent seven periods of, of church history and, and so on. And, and I'm not saying it's not possible, and, and we talked about that in another lesson, but people look at that from, again, the standpoint of kind of our, our cultured environment today. Look at that. Do you, because that's not true for everybody. There are, I mean, believers in China today, believers in North Korea, believers in Muslim countries, you know what? They suffer for the Lord. They are right now. There are believers imprisoned around the world today, right now, for that only and only for that reason, because they're believers. Just like Paul was imprisoned because of his stand for Christ, there are people right now, as we're sitting right here in this heated building, thankful for heat, right? I mean, but sitting here in this in this heat, there are people that are in a dungeon right now, suffering, perhaps even being literally tortured because they are believers. And I'm not saying that in a way that, you know, I mean, in a way, there's nothing we, you know, that's beyond our control, those circumstances, all right? So it's not like we should feel guilty because we're not suffering in that sense. But the point is, there's a Bible principle for all that purpose to live godly in Christ Jesus, there's going to be persecution. There's going to be opposition. And let me just say, if nothing else in your life, your flesh is going to oppose you. But we have seen in recent years, in our country, in our society even, some people that stand for a particular, if you want to say, Bible principle, Christian principle, they have suffered Financially, they have suffered, you know, criminally. They've been prosecuted and, and sued and things of that sort. That's, and that's becoming more and more, probably will become more and more the common thing. And there may come a time in our culture when we will be facing persecution in what we think of, right? In the sense of physical harm and torture and so on because of that. And I'm not saying we should sit around and worry about that, you know. I mean, again, if those, those, those things are beyond our control. And just like anything else, all right, if that would become our circumstances, obviously the Lord would provide grace for those circumstances. Just like the Lord provides grace for those in those circumstances now. And that have throughout the ages. There are millions, if not I mean, I don't have an idea of the actual count, but there are millions of people who have suffered over the years for the cause of Christ. Many times at the hands of organized religion. But this church typifies that concept, that idea, all right? 
there at, as, at that first century as John's writing to that church, he tells them basically uh, that's, that's their lot is to suffer for Christ. Or I should say Christ tells them that, not just John. All right, John's writing it. But, uh, but as we look at this, so let's just kind of quickly uh, look at this here. Right? You see the church addressed. It's in the city of Smyrna. Uh, I'm not even going to read that. You can look at that. I mean, it's interesting, though, the name Smyrna has to do with the idea of myrrh, which is, uh, you know, is a, is a, has the connection with bitterness and really with, with death even, all right? But uh, the context of this church, there's no other mention of this church in all the New Testament that I know of. Um, some of you have heard of the name Polycarp, all right? He was, uh, in fact, I think didn't some of... Uh, the headlines made a movie or something about that. I've never seen it. But, uh, but Polycarp was, there's some things that are found in, in uh, non-biblical writings about Polycarp, uh, historical things and so on. He was a faithful disciple of the Lord, preacher of the Lord. He, was, he probably didn't personally know the Lord as far as physically. He lived a little later, right? But he was martyred in the year uh, 155 A.D. He did know the... Uh, the Apostle John, uh, from what is written about him. But uh, anyway, he was a martyr that was from the church at Smyrna. Uh, so there's a little bit extra from the Bible that we know about Smyrna, but not a whole lot. All right. And so you see Christ described. Notice this, as, as the Lord uh, writes this church, how does he describe himself here? This is greatly different than what he said to the church at Ephesus. He says, uh, these things saith the first... And the last, which was dead and is alive. All right? So, these, the, again, these, every time Christ describes himself in one of these letters, it's fitting with what, he's, what the context of the letter is and what he's writing about. So here he says, he's the one who's the first and the last. He's the one who's eternal. All right? And by the way, who is this speaking? This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just God the Father, all right, but the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the first and the last. That's a statement that you find in the Old Testament, by the way, in the book of Isaiah about Jehovah. About uh, now, again, I would I would argue that Jehovah is not just God the Father; it's God the Son, as well, and really God the Holy Spirit. But God. Um, but you have you have this statement of eternality here, all right. But also, you could say it's a statement of experience because the Lord Jesus, it says, which was dead and is alive. He experienced death, but he also is alive because he was resurrected. Um, now, again, we'll see how that fits with what he's writing about this church because of what he warns them about. All right. But he, I mean, the Lord Jesus experienced suffering and death. He was persecuted. <laughs> I mean, more so than anybody ever has been. He was persecuted. And he experienced resurrection, right? Then notice, also you could say it's a statement of empathy in the sense he knows what they are going through. He knows what they will experience. Not just because he's God and he knows, but he can empathize with them because he experienced it. Remember that statement in Hebrews chapter 4, all right? We have a high priest that was touched, that's been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And he was tempted at all points like as we are, yet without sin. He knows. 
He's familiar with it. He's, ever, you know, that, that people say that, that statement, been there, done that? He's been there and he's done that. And so he's the one that's writing to the church and telling them these things that he's going to be telling them. All right, and then, then commendation, all right? Again, there doesn't seem to be a long list of things that he says great about this church, but he says, I know thy works. There were works there. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Um, so in other words, this church, he's saying, I know what you're experiencing. I know what you're doing, what you're going through, and so on. Their works, again, their deeds, but their tribulation. And the word tribulation here, by the way, is the idea of a, a pressing. A, they were under severe pressure, is the idea, from uh, outside sources, all right? And here, because it says uh, about the, uh, the, the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan, it's very possible that their, uh, their pressures were coming mostly from Jewish sources, all right? Um, maybe not limited to that, but again, he says he, he knows, all right? And their poverty, and again, this is not just the idea they, they were poor, but this is the idea of destitute. They were completely impoverished. And that is probably the result of, their, of how they were persecuted. Uh, again, from other things that are written, all right, people that were persecuted in that time by the government and religious, other religious authorities and so on, I mean, they weren't you know, just, just beaten or just imprisoned, but their, their, their belongings were taken. Anything they owned was confiscated. I mean, they basically were left with nothing. And these, these people are experiencing that for Christ. That's why they're experiencing this. All right? And, but then he talks about their future. Uh, notice he says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. So obviously because of what's written in verse 9, they had been suffering, right? You follow me? But according to what's verse 10, that's what they have to look forward to, is more suffering. Now, this doesn't seem like a very encouraging letter to write, does it? <laughs> I know you're really going through a lot, but you know what? It's going to get worse. Wow. I mean, that's kind of really about what it is, all right? But he says, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, uh, that ye may be tried, tested, put to the test, and ye shall have tribulation, again, that's a word that speaks of a, uh, an affliction here, uh, you'll have tribulation ten days, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life, all right, so in that verse we see several of these points uh, talked about here, but you, you see the idea, their, their present dedication, their future deliverance, all right, they're going to suffer they would face tribulation even unto death, he says. But he tells them at the beginning to not fear those things. Because, I mean, think about that. that he's the one who's experienced that already. He's the one that was dead, is alive. That's who's writing this. I mean, it's, it makes a difference if you're 
getting some not good news, but from somebody who's been there. Not just, it's not just words. It's experience talking. All right? Uh, but this idea of 10 days, this is, I, I don't really have time to get into this. I, a lot of people put a great significance on this. I, I don't know uh, the idea necessarily, but if you uh, did a search of every time in the Bible the, the phrase 10 days appears, and sometimes it's just like, I would say, completely coincidental. I mean, you know, so many days, whatever. But there are several times where it seems to have you know, uh, maybe you could make a connection with this passage here and the idea that they were going to suffer for 10 days. In, in, and I'll just mention the one, Daniel chapter 1 there, verses 12 through 15. That's the passage where Daniel and then the, the other three Hebrew, Hebrew guys with him, uh, you know, they told or asked Melzar, I think it was, to give them uh, pulse and so on for... 10 days. Prove us for 10 days. The idea of proving is what? Test us for 10 days. Um, but for 10 days, do that, and at the end of the 10 days, you examine and you make your choice. All right? Um, maybe there's a connection. The, the, the book of Daniel obviously has a strong connection with the book of Revelation. So, you know, perhaps there's a significance to that idea of 10 days as a time of testing or something. But anyway, in this context, he's telling them they're going to they're gonna suffer for 10 days. They're going to be put to death. Some of them are going to be put to death, all right? And then uh, moving on, there's no condemnation spoken against this church. That in itself is a very commendable thing to say, all right? Now, again, they weren't sinlessly perfect, because there's no believers that are, but obviously the Lord didn't, uh, how can I, you know, I mean, there was nothing in his view to point out to them, all right? So, no condemnation deserved. And correction needed, well, not necessarily any correction as such, because he doesn't condemn them, tell them something's wrong, but he does offer additional exhortation here, you could say, all right? In fact, in verse, <clears throat> excuse me, lost my place, verse 10 here, he says, fear none of those things. Now, quite literally, the idea here is stop fearing. In fact, pretty much every time you see a command about fear not or whatever in the New Testament, it's stop being afraid, stop it. That's our natural response, our human response when Things happen, all right, that, you know, they, we, we tend to fear. But it's not written in the sense of, okay, the Lord's condemning them for it. He's just saying, stop fearing. There's no reason to fear. And then he tells them, fear not, but then be faithful unto death. They had obviously at this point are being faithful, but he basically is telling them, continue being faithful. Be faithful unto death. And then he issues, notice, the promise here, all right, that I will give thee the crown of life. Um, basically, the crown, and this is the way I would look at it, the crown which is life, uh, eternal life. Um, and then when you see verse 11, all right, uh, so the consequences, if unheeded, really there's no consequences because there's no real correction. 
um, but you could say kind of a consolation that they're going to receive a crown of life if they're, they continue being faithful, all right? Don't fear, but be faithful. And by the way, you could think of things that way. What is it oftentimes that hinders our faith? It's fear. And, and really, in one sense, we always fear something, okay? We should fear God, all right, but many times instead we fear man. And Proverbs warns about the fear of man, don't, you know, the fear of man bringeth a snare. All right, so in other words, it always captures us, holds us back from obeying God. Because oftentimes what God tells us, what God commands us, is contrary to that, that aspect of fear in our lives. And that requires what? Faith. Faith in what God says in order to do the right thing in spite of the fear. So, in a way, you could say faith and fear cannot coexist, right? Faith in God is what conquers fear of man and, and things that we shouldn't fear. But, of course, the fear of God goes along with faith, all right, in a way. So, anyway, um, but this consolation, you're, you're going to receive a crown of life, and then the, the, the final thing here, the challenge issued, right? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And then notice what he says. This kind of goes right along with that idea of the crown of life. He says, he that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. All right? And according to the book of Revelation, later on, chapter 20, you'll see the second death is what? It's eternity in the lake of fire. All right? So... The ones who overcome are not going to be in the lake of fire. They will receive a crown of life instead. And so you, you see that there. And again, we hurried through that, but at least we, we, we kind of got through that. And the, the last part of your handout is basically a recap of those four areas of how to look at these letters, applying these letters and so on. But uh, this is a... You know, I think this is a letter in many ways that's often probably overlooked because it kind of seems insignificant. There's not really a long, great list of things said about this church. There's nothing really bad said about it, and it's, a real, it's probably the shortest of these letters. Uh, but at the same time, there's, there's important things here. And the bottom line is, you know, for us, don't fear, but have faith. That's, that's, that's really the options that we have when it comes to obeying God's Word. And we could sit here and worry about circumstances and worry about obstacles we might face, but really we shouldn't even worry about those at all. We shouldn't even really be entertaining all those thoughts. We should be just focusing on being, you know, trusting what God says. That's what makes the difference. So we're going to have to stop there, but... Uh, Got through that. So next time, Lord willing, we'll look at the letter to the church at Pergamos. And I forgot to advance the slides on that one, but anyway, uh, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. And Lord, thank you that uh, we have a Savior that has experienced what we experience, what we will experience, and probably, you know, really some things that we will never experience. He's experienced far more. But thank you that he identifies with us. He empathizes with us. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to stop fearing, to not fear, but to trust you, to be faithful. And we, uh, 
We just pray that you would find us faithful. We ask these things in Jesus' name. For his sake we pray, amen.